I'm Catherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. Today's guest is Bob Pardon. For 30 years, Bob and his wife Judy have been running a facility for those who are recovering from extreme religious groups, known as cults, and those recovering from extreme spiritual abuse. Bob has degrees from Gordon-Conwell and Princeton Theological Seminary and has pastored two churches. Today, we discuss the trauma and aftermath of spiritual abuse, steps for recovery, and ways those who haven't experienced spiritual abuse can come alongside survivors in an understanding way. Give me an update. Where are you guys? What are you guys doing now? Well, we're... You know, we've done this for 30 years, mm-hmm. and the Meadowhaven has dealt with the worst of the worst. We'd have people come stay for up to a year. So it was individuals who were barely functional. So as a consequence of that, Judy and I, it was like breathing in secondhand smoke. It impacts you after a while, the horror stories. So there's nothing that we haven't heard at all from incredible sexual abuse to, to starving your child to death to, I mean, just a number of issues along those lines. So anyway, we're not retiring or closing down. We're just, we stopped taking in individuals over the course of the last three years because it was just getting to be too much for us. So we are downsizing. So I'm donating a lot of our, we have a lot of source material from groups that we've collected over three decades, about 25, 2700 volumes. So, and that's the stuff they produce. And so we're donating that all to a seminary and, and we're going to get office space. We already have it in a counseling center, a couple of miles from here that has a number of offices open. We're going to do that and we'll still be able to run support groups and meet with people. We're just not going to do anything that is long-term. And so still um, the worst of the worst survivors just like any group abusive. any any group i mean this was most of the people we dealt with had been physically abused sexually abused emotionally psychologically spiritually abused they had been hospitalized they were on psychiatric meds many had tried to commit suicide so we were the last stop on the railroad for them so to speak they tried everything else and so they would come and we would we had a very extensive application process because we wanted to make sure that the individual was really committed to wanting to heal. We never charged a fee so they could come and stay here for a whole year. We raised all the support for them to be able to do that. And uh, because most people that come out of really destructive groups, they don't have two dimes to rub together. Everything's been taken from them. Mm. And these are just any kind, I'm, I'm thinking of listeners who want some more information, but is this any kind of religious group? Yeah, religious. Yeah, mostly religious, but we have had one one guy came here from Ireland who was born and raised in a organized crime group in Ireland. And wow. he had all the symptoms. It was run like a cult. So, I mean, we work with individuals, whether they've been in a religious group or not. Okay, okay, pause. I want to hear about that. So an organized crime group that was run like a cult. Oh, yeah. 
explain. Yeah. Explain yeah, they the own you. Yeah, his sister was sexually trafficked. He was, you know, he, he grew up in the group learning how to do all kind of white collar crime scams, insurance scams, things of that sort to physically hurting other individuals. And he wanted out and you can't leave here. So he came to the United States. He actually got out of the country because they were trying, he was very much afraid that they were going to try and kill him. Wow. What were the similarities between, I guess we would call it a gang here, and... It's, 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 it's a very similar. Gangs really fit a cult scenario. You know, these are ones, again, where you join, uh, you don't leave uh, the group. So, they, particularly if they're really violent. We've worked with some white supremacist groups. Mm-hmm. Um, one that was called Covenant Sword and Arm of the Lord. It was a really nasty group. It was in the headlines back in the 90s quite a bit because they had a real showdown with the federal government. And fortunately, it worked out well. But it was, you know, these are crime groups, essentially. Only that one had a religious component to it. Okay. So what makes it like a cult is there's like one leader and it's like everyone gives allegiance to that leader. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it, it, it can be, we use a lot of times, we use two different models, two different templates. There's a number of templates that can help you to kind of assess whether something is psychologically destructive. Judy and I created one that inserts the, the religious component into it, a spiritual component, because most of the groups we work with are what we call Bible-based. People who have come out of some group where, where they've been abused in the name of God. So some of the symptoms, I mean, some of the, some of the criteria that really indicate a cult is one is behavior control. This is Steve Hassan's model. It's called the BITE model. And so they control your behavior. They, they can, and these are on a continuum. It's not like all of them are the worst of the worst. And some groups have some of these characteristics uh, more intensely than others do. So you have to kind of look at it on a continuum basis. It's not either or in, out, black, white. So with like a gang, behavior control, they can tell you or they will direct your life. They'll tell you who you can live with, who you can't, the really severe ones, the violent ones. They control the kind of things that you wear. You have colors. All of those kinds of things are identifications. It's controlling your behavior, and that helps to form your identity as a member of that group. Uh, Another thing is uh, after the behavior control is what's called information control. So you don't listen to, you know, you only listen to the sanctioned information that the group gives you, their ideology. So you don't talk to former members or individuals who left because they might tell you other things. You certainly don't talk to anyone on the outside about the inner workings of the group at all. Information control. Then you have thought control. This is where they create a map of reality internally for you. So you you become, you see life through their lenses. I wear glasses. If I didn't have my glasses on and I see a telephone pole that's 100 yards away, I can't, I see two telephone poles. I don't know, and I don't really know which one is the real one. Well, when you join a destructive group or you get recruited into it, it's like they give you a set of glasses when you enter in the door. And all of a sudden, life looks exactly like they want it to look. So this is, this is thought control. 
because it, it informs your internal reality. You make decisions based upon all of that. And then the last thing is emotion control, where you often uh, generally, you feel guilty about things you shouldn't feel guilty about, and you are afraid of things that you shouldn't be afraid of. And then conversely, you are not afraid of things that you really should be afraid of, and you are not feeling guilty about things that most people would feel guilty about, i.e. maybe killing somebody or uh, just cutting your family out entirely. I mean, all kinds of things along these lines. Robberies, uh, just, I mean, gangs operate in an occult uh, framework, very, very much so. These have existed down through, down through millennia. Yeah. It, yeah. This is, there's nothing new under the sun. It's just yeah. that now we have some criteria where you can kind of begin to identify what is not going to be healthy and what is. Wow. Gosh, I have a thousand questions and I'm going to ask them. I can understand why it would be, it would take a toll over time though. And you would need to, to just change the way that you're operating. Yeah. 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 It just became, it's the individuals again that we work with, most of them, really struggled under what's called complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And that does not go away. You either deal with it or it deals with you. Okay. And Judy and I, it, it, we always counsel together. And one of the benefits is that you have someone else to talk to. So that allowed us to lengthen our time doing this work because people who do this alone, it's extremely, extremely draining because you can't talk to anyone about this. There's confidentiality uh, laws and things of that sort. So, but having said that, she and I began to really kind of experience PTSD by proxy. Mm-hmm. You just, you get numb. You hear the same stories. I, we, I, we work with individuals now where we'll say to them, you are not going to tell us anything we have not heard. And I mean anything that we have not heard over and over and over again. So, and that after 30 years, you know, was taking its toll. But in many respects, Catherine, Judy and I are at the peak of our game, so to speak, by God's grace, because we have all this experience now. So we don't want to just retire. You know, God has called us to do this. Yeah, you need to still be speaking into it. Yeah, absolutely. For the next generation. So, so you are, so you are starting a, at least a website that is going to be available to individuals who are struggling under spiritual abuse. Yeah, definitely not quite as extreme cases and the niche audience, the audience that I have in mind for the website and also the podcast are former and current church staff, because Mm -hmm. that's a very niche demographic that's also very large there's a very I know. large I, I meet with pastors <laughs> who are in that context yeah so that's who i'm not specifically saying that but that's who i have in mind with the website with the podcast Good. leadership in that respect a lot of i'm sure you have experienced this too there's a lot of education involved and oh, this this is what it is and just naming it and i'm still I'm still learning terms and, and Gina Roth and Katie and I, we, we communicate and it's kind of fun Good. to like, yeah. Oh, we're all doing yeah. this together. And yeah. 
call Katie up and be like, so <laughs> how does it feel when you tell someone the story and then they just stare at you with a blank face? Right. Oh, yeah. Don't get it at all. Like, and she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I experience that all the time. So it's good to have the. That's very normal. It's good to have the camaraderie. Yeah, so I had a couple of questions and you kind of answered like the definition of the cult or how the cult operates. That's that's really helpful. And that's what I grew up in, by the way. What did you grow up in? Christian science? Um, it was the like the patriarchal movement, vision for... Oh, really? Um, With uh, the homeschooling, the, the Meadowhaven, uh, years ago that came out of that, uh, the quiver movement. Yep, quiverful, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and like the whole when you were saying just like monitoring behavior, controlling what you wear, controlling your mind, controlling your emotions, reframing Absolutely. your narrative. Yep. Do you have yeah. siblings, Catherine? Do you have I siblings? Have, I have seven, si- seven kids total, six siblings. All right. Everyone in different degrees of closeness to my parents and, ter- and emotional closeness to them. And then, Are there any that are still really committed to... One, one who is very, very like. Where are you in the birth order? I'm number two, so I have an older brother. Okay. Yeah, so there's definitely the pendulum swing and the yo-yo thing happening with all of the siblings. Yeah. How long ago did you leave? I'm. I left my parents' house. Probably nine years ago, eight years ago, I moved away from the city seven years ago. Mm -hmm. So I did the church staff seminary thing and then ended up here, which was another spiritually abusive church that I left in January. Okay. So that was... So did you go to Covenant? Covenant Theological Seminary, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. Good for you. Mm-hmm. Good for you. What did your folks think of that? I don't know. I don't. I didn't ask them. So they yeah. came to. They came to uh, my graduation. Oh, they did. And uh, my dad wrote me. This is just you know the psychological games. My dad wrote me a card that said, "Congratulations, you're the first one to get a college degree, and now you're the first one to get a master's." of the kids and I called my sister and I was like, does he remember how he didn't want me to go to college? Like, it's like, he doesn't even like, I mean, obviously he does cause he was yeah. very against me getting a college degree and I did two yeah. years of college in secret mm-hmm. and he didn't even know. So it was, you know, just that, that kind of, and then now he would probably say, Oh no, I never told you, you can go to college. That was never something I said. That would probably be his response to if that were ever a conversation we had, which we won't. But yeah, so yeah, your description of the cult situation. I was like, yeah, that was was it. That was definitely it. So the church that I just left, it is, honestly, it was bad, but it wasn't anything close to what I experienced. Oh, yeah, no, I wouldn't anticipate that would be the case. You wouldn't have gotten involved to begin with if that was the case. Mm -mm. Because you're going to be incredibly sensitive to any kind of things that even smack of the kind of 
control that was exercised over your life. When we were running the program here, probably about 30% of the individuals who we worked with, after they'd been here for a couple of months, they would say to me, you remind me of my cult leader. Mm. And, and the first time I heard it, I thought, oh my goodness, what am I doing wrong? <clears throat> but then as I thought about it, this was something that was an excellent thing. I would say, well, I'm glad, and for two reasons. One is that you are willing to tell me that, because I took a lot of courage to do that. And I said, secondly, so that we can work through this, because if you're going to be in some kind of a context, if you're going to get a job where your boss is reminding you of your cult leader, you certainly aren't going to go and tell him that, and you are going to really struggle with being able to even stay there. So I said, if we can work through this in a way that you are operating in a normal sense regarding abuse of authority versus just something, it's like you have a, a really severe sunburn and somebody comes up close to you and starts to put their hand towards your back and you wince over that. Where normally, you know, most people, if they don't have a sunburn, you're not going to be concerned about that but you have a severe sunburn in regards to authority because they would look at us as like authority figures. We didn't charge them any money. We had leverage in the sense that, look, at you have to be as committed to wanting to heal as we are committed to helping you heal. And at the point where this is inverse here, um, then we're going to have to have a sit down and talk about what it is that you really want to do because this is hard work. So, it turned out to really be a good thing because they would then say, oh, yeah, you're right, because otherwise I'm going to be going from job to job to job because I can't stand somebody telling me that I've got to clean my room, that I've got chores to do around the facility, that, you know, these kind of things that are just part of life. So yeah, I mean, operate in a, how, how would a, someone who hasn't experienced this extreme control, how would they respond? The biggest struggle for individuals, particularly Bible-based ones, where you come out of this, is figuring out on your own what is normal that anyone would feel if they were in my shoes at this point dealing with this situation and what is really my past leaking into my present circumstances. That's very hard to do mm -hmm. because, because you start getting triggered mm -hmm. on something and you are back in the moment. It feels like the same thing. Mm -hmm. It is a learning process whereby you begin to understand and realize that this is something that is a healthy thing for you to go through, but is very, very hard. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows what it is like to be in that situation unless they have been there. Right. And, and so... In a lot of situations, just like Katie was saying, you tell your story to someone and they look at you, their eyes kind of glaze over, or they look at you like you have two heads and what in the world is this? Or they might say to you, if, if they're Christians, they might say, well, look, you're out of there. Just move on. Just let it go. You know, you're, God, God just, is good. just forget God about it. Good. Yeah, exactly. Just pray a little bit more, bring it up to the Lord, you know, <laughs> you know, read a couple of, give you a couple of Bible verses that will help. It doesn't work like that. And that only makes generally the survivor feel much worse, more guilt, because what's wrong with me? What would you, what would you oh. tell someone to, to say to 
to someone who shares this story of spiritual abuse coming out of a faith-based community, knowing that they don't know what it's like, what should they say to them? One of the things that we did, it was the very end of the program, and uh, many of the residents said this was the most significant thing because we put together this program. We've had them for a whole year. So they've, the individual has come to trust us. doesn't matter whether it's male or female. They've come to trust us. They know that we're not out to try and hurt them or make their life miserable. We've had our go-arounds at times because that's normal. So the last thing that we would do is we say, we want you to answer one question in two different ways. And this would take a couple of months because we'd have them work on this. The question is, okay, you're out in the world uh, here. You've got a job or maybe you're dating. Maybe you meet some guy or you meet some woman and you're thinking, how much do I tell them? What are they going to think? You know, is this going to be the end of it here? So the question is, <clears throat> okay, let's say that you had been uh, here at Meadowhaven. Okay, okay, Catherine, you know, you're an intelligent woman. You have a college degree. You've been out of the group now for seven, eight years. <clears throat> you must have, when you were growing up there, you must have seen things that inwardly you thought, this isn't right. Why are we doing this? Why can't we show more love? Why is it so, you know, all these kind of things. Maybe some individuals were being physically abused or they were being isolated in ways that you look back and you say, that, that was wrong, that was wrong. And so we would say to you, why didn't you leave then? What was, what was wrong with you? Why didn't you just walk out at that point? Did you say something to your mom or dad? Why not? Why didn't you do something? Particularly as you got older. I can understand when you're 12, 13, 14, 16 years old. But when you get beyond 18, 19, and 20, and you're still there, and you're putting up with this crap, and you don't do anything, what was wrong with you? So that generally is an extremely difficult. This is after we've taken them through the whole program. So we've talked about thought reform. We've talked about trauma. We've talked about boundaries. We've talked about the neurobiology, how your brain gets rewired. And if you're born and raised in the group, it changes the architecture of your brain, actually. The good news is that you can change that if you're intentional. The bad news is that it won't change if you don't do something about it. So we would, so we've gone through all of this. And so they know, have the categories, which you talked about. They have the language. They have the, the concepts. They understand the framework. So we say, okay, we want you to write out what you would say to someone who said that to you and come back and we're going to talk about it. So they'd work on it for about a week. And we always met with residents three times a week. So they, and uh, so they come back and they give it to us. And in Christian love, we would tear it apart and have them go back. We challenge them on certain points and have them go back and work on it again until they could come up with something that they owned, that they really owned. And they weren't just parroting something that somebody else had said, but this made sense to them. We understand on two levels. We understand on the level, first off, where, and we've all experienced this, you know, you're taking college courses or you hear some concept. And when you first hear it, if it's something you haven't heard before and it's logical, it'll make sense to you. And you say, oh yeah, that's right. But if you had to go out and explain it to somebody else, you couldn't do it because it wasn't, it hadn't gone deeply into your understanding. 
the second level of understanding is where not only you can be told something and it makes sense to you and you go, oh yeah, that's right. But you can also go out and explain it to somebody else. That's what we want the individual to be able to do. You've got to be able to explain this. Then the other thing that is critical is for the, the that we would have them do, or this was the reason for it as well, is that in your private moments when nobody else is around and you are there watching something or you're thinking about something or you get triggered in some way and you think back about your own person and you go, what was wrong with me? Why did I do what? And you feel guilt over this. And you feel if you're a believer, like you're a second class Christian. We had one woman that was here that came out of a very destructive group called The Walk. And she was, she, she's a believer. And she said to me, I know God cares for me and he loves me, but he only sees me out of his peripheral vision. What he meant, what she meant was that she wasn't good enough to have his full attention and focus. And she also said at one point, because she would tell us things that I myself was getting very angry listening to, that she had to put up with this. Not angry at her, but angry that she went through this. And generally, the more severe the trauma is, the individual does what's called depersonalizing. They uh, talk about the trauma that they went through as if it is a news report. They give you facts. This occurred, this occurred, this occurred. But there's an emotional disconnect that's going on. She said to me at one point, because I pressed her on this, I said, look, and I said, I'm getting angry listening to what you were saying. It makes me really sad. And she said, Bob, she said, if I got in touch with my anger, I would tear this room apart. She meant that figuratively, but just that, you know, anger and rage is very, very uncomfortable to have to deal with. So anyway, the having the individual who, when you're in your own private moments, and you're getting all of this negative feedback from your own self. What's wrong with me? Why did I stay there? Maybe there is something that I'm defective in. I've been damaged in some way that I'll never recover from. I'll never be able to have a relationship with anybody that's close because I have a tendency to just cut it off uh, in different ways or distance. So it's critical that you have answers that make sense to you that you don't kick yourself around the block all the time. Particularly individuals who've been severely traumatized and second generation. Individuals who've grown up, it wasn't your choice. It's a lot of stuff to work through. But that's not a bad thing because that is our life journey. And one of the things we would say to our residents is, you know, look at, you are gonna have, you have had experiences that most people in this world never have, at least in the States. And there's going to be a lot of people who will never understand what it is that you've gone through or what you've experienced. And some of them will just flat out uh, distance from you because they find it difficult to be around you there because they don't understand. But you're going to have a richness and a depth to your life and your relationship with the Lord if you work through this that they will never know, never know, because it tends to be surface. You see, when you've come out of a really destructive group, what that does, the trauma you experience, you get disconnected. You get disconnected from others because now you're out and you don't know how to relate in a way that feels safe. So you tend to isolate. 
you're, you are careful about what you say and who you say it to and how you say it. And if you get burned enough times, you don't say anything. You get disconnected from God because if this is what it is to serve God, I want nothing to do with that. How can I trust him again? How do I know? Because I prayed so hard. I, I worked so hard. I was committed. This isn't like I was trying to serve in some other context that didn't have this transcendency to it. But this was God, and he didn't answer my prayers, and he left me in there. You know, why didn't he save me out of this? That's a huge thing for you. You get disconnected from God in many ways. And then you get disconnected from your own person. Because if I was so convinced that this was right at a certain point, and now I found out that it's not only not right, but it's deadly, how am I going to be able to trust my own discernment? How, how am I going to get involved in a, in, in, a, in, a, in a church again or in some kind of a, a Bible study or some spiritual context without getting triggered all over the place? Because I don't have the, I don't know if I can trust my own ability to be able to discern on this. See, so that's, that's a huge thing for an individual to work through because you have become disconnected and that that's why you can work with individuals that come out of gangs organized crime individuals who have who are war veterans because trauma is trauma it's just a different set of clothes no matter what the context is and there is a universal human reaction to these things and so it's very normal to feel disconnected to feel isolated it's very normal to find it difficult to trust because trauma robs you of the ability to trust. Yeah. So that's, that's part of the whole spiritual abuse recovery. Do you remember what you said to me when we talked back in October and it's <clears throat> stuck with me. So I don't know if you remember what you said, but you said that you're going to encounter three types of people that you're yes. going to have to tell yourself. Yeah. 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 yeah I almost said that again. Go, can you go through those three types of people again? <clears throat> Yeah, one of the good things where, where we were talking about the being able to answer someone who says to you, why did you stay there? Why didn't you leave? We would tell our residents to, you need to look at this as an asset on your part, what you've been through, not a deficit. Because what this will do is this will filter out a lot of the riffraff, individuals that are not worthy of your personal involvement in their life. Because there'll be some people, you'll run into three groups. One is individuals who, they don't care whether you're an ax murderer. They don't care what you've done. They just like you and love you. And they want to spend time with you. That will be at one end. At the other end, you're going to have individuals who, it doesn't matter what you say. You're tainted. There's something wrong with you. Right? you know. And I don't want to get the heebie-jeebies by getting close to you. So they just stay away from you at this point. And may say a lot of negative things. It's that in-between group, the ones who <clears throat> want to understand, okay, I have questions. Tell me about this. Explain this to me. I'm not trying to hurt you, but, but what about this? What about that? How would you deal with this? Why didn't you deal with it this way? That's the group that you want to be able to function with because they're the ones who can be taught and can become more compassionate and understanding and can become real advocates 
that's a huge thing for former members because you that's the whole boundaries issue in realizing that there's nothing wrong with you something was done to you and you're just having a normal response to what was done and it doesn't mean that you're tainted or you're a bad person or there's something defective about you or that you're incapable of having relationships not true but that's how you may feel what are some things that you wish churches knew about encountering survivors of spiritual abuse yeah i teach on this all the time i teach a course at a seminary it's the only course i know in the whole country that is deals strictly with pastoral issues in destructive groups because of what you're asking that i got involved in this and generally what we do when we go into churches we because we do a lot of teachings uh, in that context we put on workshops all over the country uh, and in other parts of the world and usually if it's a christian group someone will say or will imply that you know i would never get involved in a cult there's just no way i mean i just have you know, my relationship with the Lord is just really good. I know the scripture. I would never get involved. And we always like dealing with that in a good way. But it is that individual that we say is the most likely to be recruited into a destructive group because their, their defenses are down. So generally, dealing with spiritual abuse, you've got to realize, we would say, that this is not an individual who decided one day, you know, I've got nothing better to do with my life. I think I'll go out and join a cult and have them ruin it. That's not the case. This individual has joined something if they were recruited into it. Your situation is different. You were born and raised. Very destructive in that way there and very guilt-producing. So, you know, we say, you know, look at, uh, nobody just wakes up and says, I want to join some kind of staff situation where it's going to ruin my life here. They join what they think is going to be something that is really healthy. But once you get involved in that, you begin to realize, no, there's a lot of difficulties here. There's a lot of things that are not healthy, that are not good. And you're not going to find any perfect situation. I pastored two churches, multi-staff. And in one, I was the senior pastor. In the other, I was an associate. But in both those contexts there, you're dealing with a bunch of sinners. And sometimes these individuals have a whole lot of baggage and power issues. And they're unwilling to really extend grace and compassion and understanding to help an individual to really heal. So when we teach on this, we'll try to, there's a good book that was written by a woman named uh, Janice Hutchinson called Out of the Cults and Into the Church. She is an ex-Mormon. So it comes from a Mormon worldview. She became a believer and she got involved. But she talks about, in a very, very healthy way, the issues that the church needs to understand in regards to somebody that comes into your congregation, that sits in the back, that doesn't want to get involved, but may begin to do it a little bit, but then begins to reveal their story that they were in a really spiritually abusive situation. Maybe it was another, what we call aberrational church, you know, not a heresy. And maybe it was a full-blown cult. 
there. Uh, being able to really work with them as the marginalized. Judy and I have always seen ourselves as pastoring on the fringes. It's these individuals that get lost in the church context there. And it, a, a lot of what needs to be done for them is the same thing that needs to be done in any context. You want to validate their experience. You, you want to not try and explain it away. You want to be able to help them to understand how much this impacted their own self-esteem and their walk with God, their own sense of their own person, and to be able to rebuild that in a healthy way. You want them to be able to experience all of the emotions that come with this and not try to shut those down because it's unchristian to feel really angry at this guy or this woman who did X, Y, Z, you know, or who was running this show and I just can't forgive him. I can't move on. There's so much in the Christian context that is, that is either denial or it just minimizes the damage that is done to believers. And so, you know, you just need to, if you've been really injured in a Christian context, the pastor didn't mean it, you just need to forgive here. Well, if this was a serious, I, I mean, you can say that to me if my next door neighbor looked at me cross-eyed and I got my feelings hurt on that, and the guy tends to be a jerk. But if you're talking about somebody who's ruined my life or has really impacted me seriously, those create rage in individuals generally. And they create tremendous guilt. It just it creates a whole plethora of issues that the person has to work through. And to be able to tell them, this is okay. You've got to be able to deal with this. Otherwise, it deals with you. And that's not what God wants. And that's talk about what real authentic forgiveness is, not the stuff you hear half the time, which is just, well, you just need to let it go and just forgive and just move on. Uh, here, you know, you're supposed to forgive 70 times seven. So you just let it go here. I think that that's helpful. And I think that that's uh, for people trying to understand what someone experienced when they're spiritually abused. How would you define spiritual abuse? Spiritual abuse is different. It, it, it shares a lot in commonality with just regular abuse, where you begin to lose your psychological boundaries. You are um, treated more as a object rather than a subject. You're treated as an it rather than a person, where you are invalidated, where you are not treated with integrity. Those are all situations on a continuum that can create lesser abuse or great abuse. And that's shared whether it's a secular environment or a religious environment, because they operate that way. Mm -hmm. What is so damning and so insidious in a religious context is that you infuse God into this, and everything is ramped up exponentially. This grabs at the very core of who you are. So this isn't like you were in an abusive sorority or fraternity or club at some point, that this is something where your identity and at a very deep level and in a transcendent way is impacted severely. That really encompasses, I would contend, 
spiritual abuse. You leading your family as the second generation, this had to have had components of whether you believe this intellectually or not, but certainly emotionally that I potentially am leaving God. I mean, this is, it, it is, it is just an extremely difficult situation like that. You see, you wouldn't feel that way if you were just leaving a sorority. I mean, yep. you'd be mad and you'd be angry, but finally I'm out of here, these bunch of jerks. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I remember when I moved out of my parents' house for like three weeks, fear, like I've never experienced before. Yeah. Just God yeah. is going to, God yeah. is going to strike me down. Yeah. Nothing yeah. in my life will ever go right again because I've, I've gone against everything God wanted, even though in my yeah. head, I'm like, I know that's yeah. not true. My entire body. Exactly. 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 That is very normal, out. Catherine. Yep. Absolutely. And you know, the thing here is that human beings experience, it's normal to experience anger and fear. Those are two normal human emotions. When you've come out of a traumatic environment, you experience anger and fear on steroids. It is now rage or terror. So it's not just normal fear. You feel terror and that grabs the very core of you in that way. And you will feel not just normal anger, but you feel rage. Where you really want to meet somebody behind Walmart with a baseball bat. Yep. So, and, and if it's a, and, and if you're trying to make sense out of this in your relationship with the Lord and your walk with God, Christians shouldn't feel that way. You know, I mean, God, what, I'm supposed to be someone who has peace and trust and joy and someone who is able to forgive because God forgives me. So there's something severely wrong with me to have these kind of emotions. So Christians just shut them down. And then it comes back to bite you in the ass Absolutely. Later. Absolutely. It goes underground and it shows up elsewhere. It's like you have a bad day at the office. You come home and you kick the cat. The cat's not the issue. It was something that went on at the office. Mm-hmm. But the cat gets all of the... podcast supports TearsofEden.org, a community and resource for those in the aftermath of spiritual abuse. If you know someone who might benefit from the material of the podcast or the website, feel free to share it with them. And when you subscribe to the mailing list of TearsofEden.org, I'll send you access to a 10-minute mindfulness meditation. Finally, I want to invite you to take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review on your favorite podcasting listening apparatus. I'll see you next time. Thank you.